Right, hands up. How many of you have heard of Elizabeth Stewart? How many have heard of the Winter Queen? And how about the Queen of Bohemia? Bravo if you did put a hand up, but don't worry if you didn't. These are all alternative names for one woman we all should have heard of, but most of us haven't. Born in 1596, by the time of her death, this daughter, wife and sister to kings had, to quote today's guest, lost a kingdom, the Upper Palatinate, several wars, three infant sisters, three brothers, one as a baby, and indeed her brother Charles I was beheaded, a husband, six children and several palaces. She had also outlived all the ambassadors and generals who had ever supported or opposed her. She was Elizabeth Stuart, Queen of Bohemia, though known as the Winter Queen by her detractors. Her grandson, George, Elector of Hanover, succeeded to the British throne in 1714, and that means the modern British royal family is directly descended from her. She was also an important woman in 17th century history, and yet I suspect, as I say, that most of us have not heard of her before. So in today's podcast, we'll explore her story, but we'll also think about why her fate has been either obscurity or calumny, and how one goes about rehabilitating an early modern woman. My guest today is not new to not just the Tudors. You'll remember Dr Nadine Ackerman from the podcast where she came on to talk about 17th century female spies, whom she discovered in preparing her book Invisible Agents, Women and Espionage in 17th century Britain. Dr Ackerman is a reader in early modern English literature at Leiden University and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. She is the editor of The Complete Correspondence of Elizabeth Stuart, Queen of Bohemia, and this month she publishes her long-awaited biography of the same subject. It's called Elizabeth Stuart, Queen of Hearts. Natalie Zeman Davis, herself uncrowned Queen of Early Modern History, said of it, In Queen of Hearts, Nadine Ackman combines matchless archival expertise with a storyteller's instinct to give new life to one of the 17th century's most misunderstood women a gripping tale. So let's delve into that tale of a much misunderstood woman. Dr. Ackerman, Nadine, if I may, welcome back to Not Just the Tudors. It's a delight to see you again and to talk about this new book. Thank you so much for inviting me back on the programme. Not at all. I'm very excited that we get a chance to talk about this woman on who you've spent so many years. <laughs> we'll talk a bit about that in a little while. But first of all, could you introduce us to this person known as the Queen of Hearts? Who was she? And how was she at the centre of 17th century British and European history? Yes, she was Elizabeth Stuart. And I hope that by now she is known again as the Queen of Hearts because that's how her contemporaries called her. In history, she is known to most of us as the Winter Queen, which is a mock name. So I wanted to move away from that name and call her the Queen of Hearts again. She was the daughter of James VI, who later became James I of England and Anna of Denmark, the sister of Charles I or the aunt of Charles II. So she is part of Stuart history, as your queen, Elizabeth II, is descended. Yes, so she's absolutely crucial in the history of this nation. And she is a fascinating woman who 
was connected to so many people of importance in 17th century Europe. But as you said, she's been given this name, the Winter Queen, which is this mocking nickname. And when she's not being mocked, she's been sort of practically invisible in our histories. Why is that the case? I think, as is often the case with women, and even with aristocratic women, it's almost unbelievable that we actually do not know that much about our Stuart queens at all. Elizabeth Stuart is certainly not the only royal lady whom we do not really know much about. For instance, also her mother, Anne of Denmark, or her sister-in-law, Henrietta Maria. Their letters, for instance, have not been edited. That's how my entire journey started with Elizabeth Stewart. I started editing her letters and it seemed that nobody had really looked at all her writings. And yet she has such a strong, powerful voice, which felt to me really unique. It was not flat, not full of kind of rhetoric that you would expect when you are reading letters, but she had a kind of personal tone to her writings and we didn't really know anything about it and that has something to do I think with not yet knowing enough about women's history in general that started in the 1980s and we've done so much we've come so far already but there's still a lot more to be done. What are some of the ways in which she has historically been maligned? People have looked at certain things and taken statements out of context. For instance her daughter Sophia of Hanover has written these memoirs. And right at the beginning, she states, I'm going to write a satire about my family and I'm poke fun at everyone. And that is ignored, it's not mentioned. And then there's this statement that she says, my mother cared more about her monkeys and dogs than about her children. And historians in the 19th century have taken that out of context and used that as a statement to indicate that she was a bit mad, that she was frivolous, apparently surrounded by monkeys and dogs, not thinking that having a menagerie was actually a status symbol. It showed access to the new world as well, that you had a monkey, a lot of aristocratic women had them. And it was used to show that she was a bad mother because apparently she didn't care about her children. Whereas if you look at her own writings, she writes very lovingly about her children and she fights her entire life to get her children's inheritance back. So when you start looking at her own writings, a completely different picture emerges. That's very interesting. So we've got these fairly conventional ways of beating up on women, saying she's a bad mother, she's completely frivolous, and completely denying any symbols of power and status or interventions that are made on their behalf that she carries out in her lifetime to create this picture of her. So let's talk about how you found out a different picture of her because you have done over the last 15 years or so a phenomenal amount of work. Tell us about the work that you've done. Yes, I almost don't dare to think about it, that it has been 15 years or perhaps even longer that I started to work on her. And I've started collecting her letters, which I found all over Europe and in the United States, in libraries, in private collections, 47 different locations. And I found thousands of letters that hadn't been looked at before, 
quite a lot of them were in cipher code. So I had to decode all these letters, I had to transcribe all these letters and make sense of them because she is in the midst of so many conflicts that determine the 17th century. I think that's what also makes her interesting. It's not so much, even though she is a wonderful woman or a very fascinating woman, but if you look at her, you start to get different pictures about, for instance, the Wars of the Three Kingdoms or the English Civil Wars that she was part of or the Eighty Years' Wars and the Thirty Years' Wars. So there's so many kind of intertwining conflicts in Europe that you can then better understand by looking at the correspondence of Elizabeth Stewart. Yes, this is a monumental work of scholarship. Just in case anyone is doubting the scale of it, this is thousands of letters that Dr Ackerman has gathered and transcribed. You said you've deciphered 125 and reconstructed nine never-seen-before cipher keys. So this is an extraordinary work. Let's talk about what you've learned in doing that. Let's go through Elizabeth's life, because she starts... As a steward, she starts her life in Scotland until the moment that her father becomes King of England as well as King of Scotland. And in these early years, we actually already have some documentation from her, her ledger. What can we learn from this about the young Elizabeth? She keeps a record of every penny that she is spending. She is being trained in how to run a household. So how much do you pay your footman? How much do you pay the cook? She is constructing her own kind of royal household from a very young age. And she buys her own pens and quills or she uses the money and she keeps that in a ledger. So we have a very detailed record in her mother tongue, Scots, which we later do not no longer find writing. It becomes more anglicised. But in the beginning, you have this wonderful Scottish girl you very carefully notes down every penny that she is spending. Princesses, of course, are born and bred to marry. And from quite a young age, it's decided that she is going to be wed to the new elector, Palatine. Could you explain to us <laughs> who he was, where the Palatinate was, and why James VI and first considered him a suitable match for Princess Elizabeth? Yes, she had many suitors from a very early age because they wanted to have their sons marry the daughter of James. Even the King of Spain was interested. We have Gustavus Adolphus, the late King of Sweden. We have uh, Morris, the Prince of Orange. All these men are asking for a hand and James decides to go for a German prince because the Palatinate is in Germany. Why this happens, it's almost a coincidence. Certain things happen and the line. Frederick or his advisors and uncles have tried to win Elizabeth for their Frederick since 1608. James wasn't really interested in the beginning, but then you have the King of France being assassinated some years later. James is beginning to feel that he needs to have some kind of Protestant pushback against the threats of Catholicism, which he is beginning to emerge in Europe. And Frederick becomes the elected Palatine quite unexpectedly because his father dies, who was a very young man himself. So when they were asking for her hand in the beginning, they didn't think that Frederick would be elected Palatine so quickly. But now this, this young boy, because he's only 16 years old, as is she, 
becomes Elector Palatine, who is a Protestant prince and one of the most powerful electors of the Holy Roman Empire, as well as a, a military leader, the leader of the Protestant League. So she will be married to this Calvinist prince, and James hopes to sort of balance the empire by marrying his son to a Catholic princess. And the son you're referring to is Prince Henry. Yes. But you start your book in late 1612. Tell us what happened then. Yes, Elizabeth loved her brother very much, her brother Henry, and they have a very close bond. They write to each other whenever they're not in the same courts. They go riding together, they exchange gifts. And he suddenly falls ill while she is celebrating her engagement. Frederick has come to England. James wanted to make sure the boy didn't have any hereditary diseases. So he invites him over. So it's not a proxy marriage, but they are actually seeing this prince. And Henry is at first entertaining him as well, but he falls ill and dies. And she is completely heartbroken. But the wedding is then actually moved forwards because there's a lot of pushback suddenly about the match. England has seen the heir of the throne die unexpectedly, and they're looking at Elizabeth, sort of thinking, perhaps she might rule the country one day, so should we really let her go and move to Germany? So James gets a bit nervous and moves the wedding forward. So she is still in mourning, the entire court is still in mourning, and yet they are also celebrating a wedding. So it's a very mixed atmosphere. It's interesting that, isn't it? Of course, we know, with hindsight, that it will be her younger brother, Charles, who becomes king. But at the time, he was so weak and considered sickly. Not only was Elizabeth next in line after Charles, but actually she was basically considered to be the heiress presumptive. And this creates all sorts of interesting counterfactual scenarios. But I suppose at the time... What it means for her, as you say, is her wedding is rushed forward and there are concerns about her safety and attempts to protect her from poisoning. Yes, she has physicians around her who have all kinds of things in their cabinets to test food for poisoning and things to protect her with. So there is this kind of fear because suddenly she has become much more important than she was. As you say, Charles was sickly and they thought if Henry, who was quite sturdy and this strong young man, if he could die, then Charles would surely die. And we're looking at Elizabeth, who might rule the country. The wedding between Frederick and Elizabeth takes place on Valentine's Day, 1613. It's the first royal wedding for 60 years and it is stunningly lavish and stunningly expensive. Can you give us a sense of it and how much it cost? It's massive. I think I compare it in the book to the opening of the Olympic Games. And I think that's the kind of scale you need to think about this wedding. Over £93,000 this entire thing costs, which today would be £12.5 So that's incredible amount of money. But it also includes her dowry and the journey to Heidelberg, to her kind of new castle which, of course, she needed a lot of protection because she is traveling through Europe. So that's part of the cost. There were feasts that continued for days on end. It started with the fireworks, 
not normal fireworks, but we have castles on the Thames and dragons and knights riding horses, all displayed in a kind of fireworks spectacle. All these people from London waiting for hours to see this. And the wedding itself, there are so many people. And we have masks, we have plays, we have display of jewellery, we have, of course, of various wedding gowns. She didn't have one, but several. We have a portrait of her from around this time. And indeed, there have been already several portraits painted of her. Can you give us a sense of what she looked like and how she was depicted in her pictures? Yes. The thing is, of course, with pictures, we don't really know this is what they looked like. And there is something very peculiar going on with the very early portraits of her. Even as a young girl, she looks really old and it looks really peculiar. But it is because James had instructed a painter, make her look like me. So we can see this kind of Stuart lineage. She is really my daughter. So you actually see James's features in the early portraits. And she also modeled herself and people around her were also doing that. They modeled her after Elizabeth I. She was named after the great queen. And her hairline was, for instance, plucked out as a young age to make her look like Elizabeth I. So she has similar kind of dresses and she looks really stern. But also, I think you can think this is a girl who already at this age has a sense of manipulating her image. It's interesting that she was compared to Elizabeth there's something there, not just about appearance, though, but about her with Frederick being seen as Elizabeth's kind of spiritual heirs. Yes, poets write about her as if this is Elizabeth I resurrected. What did that association mean for our Elizabeth and her reputation? She used it to portray a kind of militant Protestantism. Elizabeth I was the virgin queen and Elizabeth Stuart would get 13 children. So there was a kind of problem there, so to speak. But for instance, Elizabeth I compared herself to goddess Diana, who is not only goddess of virginity, but also the goddess of the hunt. So Elizabeth Stuart loved hunting. So that was a very easy comparison for her. She also mimicked her godmother's signature. So she purposely had the same signature as Elizabeth I. So that must have been also very strange for courtiers who received such a letter. They were reminded of a different age. So after the marriage, the couple moved to Heidelberg Castle. What was their marriage like in the six years that they remained in the Palatinate? Yes, so this was an arranged marriage. And I think because the wedding was such a huge feast, we have a kind of romantic notion of that marriage in the beginning. But it was an arranged marriage. They could only speak French with each other. Elizabeth did not speak German. And when you see paintings of him, he really looks like a very young boy, both 16 years old. She moves to a foreign country and we know Heidelberg Castle from this wonderful painting where we see all these magnificent gardens. But when she arrives, the gardens weren't there. So this is a castle on bare rock and there is a mother-in-law who is quite interfering. 
she has a very difficult relationship with Frederick and with the mother-in-law and she goes away hunting a lot on her own. So they will have a very loving marriage, but certainly in the beginning, I think they still need to get to know each other. Over on the Warfare podcast by History Hit, we bring you brand new military histories from around the world. Each week, twice a week, we release new episodes with world-leading historians, expert policymakers, and the veterans who served. From the greatest tanks of the Second World War... And so what are you actually trying to get out of your tank? You're trying to get manoeuvrability and you're trying to get a really big gun. Your Tiger and your Panther are there to dominate the battlefield, primarily on the Eastern Front and in the North Africa and all that sort of stuff. But by the time they're actually coming in in decent numbers, that moment has already passed. Through to new histories that help us understand current conflicts. Any invader, any attacker, any adversary will exploit gaps within society. It was true then, it's true today. But the Finns signaled that they were united, and I think that's what the Ukrainians should signal today too. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts, and join us on the front lines of military history. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. After six years in the Platinate, so as she's just turning 23, she is crowned Queen of Bohemia in Prague. Now, this takes some explaining, and perhaps we ought to start with an event that many people may have heard of, the defenestration of Prague. What relationship does that have to their offer of the crown of Bohemia, and in fact their decision to accept it? Yeah, basically some Catholic nobles are pushed out of a window. And this is actually a very serious assassination attempt. But these men do survive. But the rebels have made a very powerful statement to the Habsburgs rulers in Bohemia that they are no longer putting up with 
what they think is an infringement on their rights. And we have an emperor dying, and the emperor in the Holy Roman Empire was usually also the king of Bohemia. Now, Frederick, Elizabeth's husband, as a lector responsible for decisions an emperor makes, is sort of questioning the constitution of the empire, saying normally the emperor is the king of Bohemia, but should that be the case, should not we really think about whom we want to elect as electors? That's what we're here for. So he raises the issue, not necessarily wanting to be the chosen one, but he ends up being offered the crown of Bohemia and he then accepts and thereby supports the rebels and it all gets out of hand quite quickly. Elizabeth is often accused by historians that she is so ambitious that it was her ambition that drove Frederick to accept the crown. Whereas actually you see her being depressed in the platinate while this is happening. Once he accepts, she fully supports him. But I think there are signs that she is questioning whether this is the right decision. And once they have arrived in Prague, there are certain things about Elizabeth that earn the disapproval of the Bohemians. Yeah, she's this very kind of feisty woman, very attractive woman, and she likes to dress a certain way. She has a very revealing cleavage at that time, as well as her lady saying waiting, and the inhabitants of Prague frown upon that dress. She makes sure that her ladies-in-waiting cover themselves up a bit, but she doesn't change herself. And this sort of later on in her life as well, in The Hague, a similar thing happens. Some ministers complain to chaplains saying, can't she dress differently? And her chaplain answers Her Majesty dressed as Her Majesty wants to dress herself. So these complaints are never taken too seriously. And people in Prague don't really know what kind of religion she abides to. They at some point think she is a Lutheran. In hindsight, she makes sure that people know that she isn't a Lutheran. But since so many of the population were Lutherans themselves, she could perhaps have not quenched that rumour and pretended perhaps that she was. But this is speculative. But the people in Prague come to love her in that year that they reign. Yeah, and it seems that you've given a bit of an insight into her character there, that she seems stubborn and knows her own mind. She is incredibly inflexible. One of her mottos is all or nothing, tout or rien. And I would rather break than bend is another one of her mottos. So she will do what she has decided to do in the first place and stick with that. That doesn't really help her in her life, I think, that inflexibility. One thing that she sticks to is the title of Queen of Bohemia for the rest of her life, even though they have to flee Prague after only a year. Why do they have to leave so quickly? Yes, they deposed an emperor who wanted to be King of Bohemia himself, Ferdinand. And though they believe that being rightfully elected, Ferdinand asks his cousins, the King of Spain, for help and Catholic armies reach Prague. They're basically driven out by Catholic armies after the Battle of White Mountain in November 1620. So they are driven away. They have to flee in the end. 
and she never gives up the title of Queen of Bohemia because if she had done so, she would admit to having done something wrong. So they, the emperor strips her husband of, of his patrimonial lands in Germany and titles. So he's no longer allowed to be elector. If she had given up the title of King and Queen of Bohemia, they would have said, yes, we have done something wrong. So they try to get their lands back in Germany. I think they forget about Bohemia quite quickly, but they do want those German lands back. And sticking to the title is one of the ways they can do that. So this desire for their lands back comes known as the Palatine Cause by this point in The Hague in the Netherlands. And it's in the 1620s that the cult of Elizabeth as Queen of Hearts developed. Why did that come about? Yes, she was very charismatic. She had a large following. They said, even though you're not a Queen of Nations, you are a Queen of Hearts, because so many soldiers were willing to fight for her, even Catholic ones. So you have Catholic Scots wanting to fight for their Stuart princess. So they put dynastic lines above religion. So you have all these soldiers who are willing to fight for her. And that's why she stays in The Hague for so long, because we have Scottish and English soldiers who are part of the Dutch army, but are actually garrisoned in The Hague. So she becomes a figurehead. They can see their queen and they can visit her at court. So they know whom they are fighting for. And do we see her agency and her sort of political action during these years? How does she go about trying to garner support for the cause? By writing letters. And that's probably why so many of those survive. I often think she did nothing but write letters. She writes to all the ambassadors, all the kings and queens of state of Europe to get support for her cause. And she is, in that respect, very successful. She managed, for instance, in 1636 to stop a peace treaty. That probably wasn't the smartest move, but that was what she wanted. And she manages to stop an embassy by writing letters. I wonder about the relationship between Elizabeth and her father up until his death in 1625. I mean, he hadn't stepped in really, to help her defend her throne. And then there's her brother, who in 1623 is tottering off to Catholic Spain to court the Infanta, which Elizabeth can't have been happy about. What's the relationship that she has with these men? James, I think, did more for her than she was willing to admit or perhaps realised. So he is struggling with the Parliament. They both want to support the Palatine cause, but they have different ways of going about it. She certainly thought that King James wasn't doing enough for her. She wanted that he would declare war rather than send armies on the mercenary banners or volunteers. She has therefore a difficult relationship with her father. Charles is even more complicated because at first he indeed goes for this Spanish match also encouraged by James. But when the Spanish match falls through, he declares war on Spain. So until 1630, from the moment he becomes king until 1630, she is very much pro-Charles, whom she, of course, will never see again. So she has last seen him in 1613, when they were just teenagers. So it's also incredible to imagine 
that even though they had such a complicated relationship, they haven't actually seen each other since 1613. But when he makes his peace with the Spanish in 1630, then she is really disappointed and she has a much more difficult relationship with him. It's interesting to think that they were sort of ideas in each other's heads because they were communicating all the time but hadn't seen each other for so long. And I suppose in 1630 also she ceases to be his heir apparent because his wife Henrietta Maria has a child and so that's going to change their relationship as well. And then of course the other thing we need to mention is that in 1629 her eldest son had died really tragically. Yes, he drowns and she is really heartbroken. So he drowns in 1629 on his way with his father as a kind of an adventure to see a Spanish galleon being brought to Dutch Amsterdam. This kind of prize procession taken from her enemies. And it's just an accident. A boat hits their barge and they find him the next morning. The water is freezing cold. He's frozen to the mast and his body is brought back to The Hague. If you compare that to her own brother dying approximately at the same age, which was also a terrible tragedy and unexpected, the difference is that Elizabeth has so many other children. So there, there is not immediately a kind of power vacuum in that respect. But that means that we do have a very different elector palatine. I think the boy who died what seemed to have been much kinder and much closer to his mother than the one who eventually becomes elector palatine. And he was called Frederick Henry. I mean, he was named after the brother who had died. Yes. And, you know, Elizabeth already is experiencing huge amounts of loss. Her brother, an infant brother, her father, her son by this point, her mother, of course, as well. Yeah, she loses all these people around her. And I think it's quite telling that from the moment her brother Henry dies, she's wearing this big mourning band in a kind of big black flower on her arm. And she's portrayed in all the paintings still wearing it. Throughout her life, she had constantly cause for mourning that she never takes that off in quite dramatic ways. Indeed, three years later, at the age of just 36, she's widowed. How did the death of her husband, Frederick, change her life? It is unexpected. So he is with, at that time, the Swedish army. They're at the verge of taking part of the Palatinate back when he dies of illness. And when she hears the news, she locked herself in a room and cried and screamed for days on end. Thereafter, she dresses up her stately home in The Hague, inside and outside in black velvet. So we have this kind of huge building in The Hague which becomes one massive black block that visitors will see because she never takes it down again. And she dresses in black and she creates this kind of cult of widowhood, also dressing her letters as mourning cards using black seal wax instead of red wax. And that's also a political move. That is, remember, I was the wife of. So she uses also that to continue to try to get the lands back, and this time for her children and not so much for herself anymore. She was offered the option of returning to England. Why didn't she do so? 
So the moment Frederick dies, Charles says, okay, it's time for you to come back to Whitehall. He prepares her rooms in the palace. They are refurbished. He sends an embassy of 150 men to The Hague, led by Thomas Howard, the Earl of Arundel. And she invites them to a court. She has dinner with them. And then she says, I'm not with you. I'm staying here. Because she knew that Charles, who by then had made his peace with the Spanish, wanted very different things than she. Or he wanted to support her, but she believed in waging war, whereas he believed in diplomacy. So it's also very almost unfeminine because we here have a woman wanting to wage war. So she knew that as soon as she had gone back to Whitehall, for instance, she no longer would have her autonomy. Charles is trying to spy on her correspondence. So she believes as long as I stay in The Hague, I can talk to all the ambassadors who visit the Dutch court and just arrive on my doorstep as well. So she felt she could influence politics much more if she was further away from Charles and his Catholic wife. And of course, to fast forward slightly, it is the king who wants to act in diplomatic fashion who ends up going to war with Parliament. Civil war breaks out in 1642. What's the effect on Elizabeth Stuart? It has an extraordinary effect because her court becomes an alternative Stuart court on the continent. So we have all these refugees who are going to The Hague and basically have displaced their court from one country to the next. And by that time, her niece, Mary, has been married to the Prince of Orange. Mary at that time is still very young, so they kept Mary in England for a long time. But when the civil wars reach England, Henrietta Maria thinks this is the time I can use my daughter as an excuse. I can pretend to drop her off to Holland, whereas in fact I want to raise some money so I can pay for weaponry. So Henrietta Maria and Mary go to The Hague and Mary will also have her own steward court there. So we have two steward courts at the time that the civil wars really kick off. So it changes the entire political landscape. I note in your book the prayer that gets added to the prayer book for the Stuart Navy to comfort the afflicted Queen of Bohemia, sister to our sovereign. And she does seem to have been afflicted in many ways. For example, problems with money seem to have dogged her life. Is that fair? Oh, yes, absolutely. She is, I think, in people's minds, always the poor widow. That was certainly true, but near the end of her life, in the beginning, we have this girl who had kept this ledger and knew the value of money from a very young age. So she has saved quite a lot of money. They had put some things into the banks of Holland and province of Utrecht, and that was generating interest. So she was doing quite well. She had a pension from the Stuart Crown. She made the mistake in 1638 when she was so fed up waiting for all these generals to do something for her that she bought an army and she spent all her money thinking this army could not be defeated because it was her son Rupert who later makes a name for himself of course in the civil wars and Charles Louis as well as experienced generals who were at the head of this army but unfortunately it immediately gets defeated so that was her money gone and so she only had a pension from the Stuart Crown left and that is stopped 
by Parliament as soon as the civil wars start. And she has troubles with her children as well. Tell us about those. Yes, loads of children and loads of troubles. It's certainly the case that, for instance, she wanted her dowry back so she would have an income. And in the Peace of Westphalia, her son, Charles Louis, gets half of the platinum back, which includes her dowry, but then refuses to give that to his mother. So he actually, in that respect, almost steals from her and doesn't give her widow pension. So she has lots of arguments with him about that. He's a very kind of peculiar character in that respect. He doesn't seem to appreciate what his mother has done for him. And very sad that after she has worked for this cause for all these years, that finally, 1648, he's handed back half of it, but doesn't show any kindness, really, to his mother, who has worked for his elevation in this way. Yes, he's very bitter at that point. I think what was on the table in 1648 for Charles Louis was already offered to Elizabeth in 1636. But as we said, she was for all or nothing. And she's being offered half. And she says, no, thank you very much. I want everything back, including the titles that come with the power to veto decisions the emperor is making. Whereas he doesn't get much of his influence back and just takes half of the land. To be fair, at that point, he really didn't have another option. But he felt that his mother could have done that earlier for him. So they have very different views about politics. What of her other children? Yes, her other children. (laughs) She loves Rupert very much, the kind of military commander. She also has very bright daughters. She has uh, Louise Hollandine, who becomes a noted female artist. She works in the studio of Geert van Honthorst. And she, unfortunately, converts to Catholicism and flees from The Hague in the middle of the night leaving again her mother heartbroken because Elizabeth has tried to arrange marriages for all of her children and she had refused the offer of the king of Poland to marry one of her daughters because her daughters would then have to convert to Catholicism. So they have said no to one of the daughters becoming queen of Poland and yet this other daughter just converts and doesn't even gain a husband, but becomes a nun in France later. And she's not the only one to convert. That's not even the end of the story. No, so there's another one, Edward, who a couple of years earlier than his sister. But she forgives Edward. Charles Louis sort of thinks he converted for political reasons to marry this rich heiress. And she even sends him a wedding present So I think she was convinced that the conversion could be questioned. So she forgives him. She also has children with whom she just continues to be in good terms, fortunately. She also has the daughter, Elizabeth, named after the godmother again, who becomes one of the great philosophers of this age, who writes with Descartes. And I think it's because Elizabeth made sure that her daughters were educated in a certain way, that they didn't have a kind of gendered education that she herself had. She had always wanted to learn proper Latin and Greek. And the story is that she wasn't allowed to. Whether that's the case or just a rumour is a bit unclear, but she certainly made sure that her own daughters were taught all the classical languages. Now... Towards the end of her life, her nephew is made 
the restored King of England, Charles II. And having spent 40 years in exile, she returns finally to England, but dies very soon afterwards. Do you think of her life as having been tragic? It's tragic in a way that she loses so many of the people around her. By that time, all of her supporters have died. Some of her children have died. So she's very much alone. But I've never really thought about Elizabeth as tragic because she has been so incredibly influential and active throughout her life that I wouldn't describe her as such. She still has a lot of humour, even towards the very end. So I'm inclined to say she hasn't had a tragic life. She has had a very full life, but not a tragic one. So we started by thinking about her traditional reputation. If we were to revisit that, how do you think we should now remember her? We should definitely remember her as the Queen of Hearts. Thousands of English and Scottish soldiers fought for her, died for her. She was part of so many conflicts that determined the 17th century. And she is a feisty, a witty woman, incredibly stubborn, inflexible. This was a woman who speared boars from horseback when she was eight months pregnant. So I think she was a force to be reckoned with. And we have so many of her letters that it is amazing to get access to the century through her eyes. It almost feels like her great misfortune was that she was born a woman. Yes, but I think that's the history that needs to be corrected because at the time people saw her as a ruler, not as a woman. So it's us historians who need to look at women in a different way. Thank you so much for introducing us to this amazing woman and bringing her once again to our attention and giving us a sense of someone who has actually continued to have an influence over the British monarchy, but in her own right was extraordinary and worked with a power that we don't often see because we haven't often done the kind of archival digging that you've done here. So thank you for introducing us to her. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess 
and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.